At the Foot of the Cross, a monthly podcast from the Catholic Bishops' Conference of England and Wales. Well, hello everyone, James Abbott here with our October edition of At the Foot of the Cross, bringing you the latest from the Secretariat of the Catholic Bishops' Conference of England and Wales. Now, since our last podcast, we've, we've watched on with great sorrow and pain the conflict in Israel and Gaza. And of course, we pray for peace, the release of hostages, and that the humanitarian situation, importantly, will be alleviated so civilians, so often caught in the middle, can be delivered to safety. We've carried the words of Pope Francis, uh, local church leaders like Cardinal Pizzabala, the Latin Patriarch of Jerusalem, and the statements of Cardinal Nichols, president of our own Bishops' Conference. Now, importantly, Pope Francis has called for a day of prayer, fasting and penance for peace on Friday the 27th of October. He's encouraging people of different Christian denominations, other religions and all those who advocate for peace to participate as they see fit. And actually, it's really important that we remember the world's ongoing conflicts, not to put them to one side, because clearly we have the the conflict in Ukraine. And let's not forget also Nagorno-Karabakh. Uh, In the chair, as usual, is the General Secretary of the Bishops' Conference, Canon Christopher Thomas. Canon Chris, how are you? Very well, thank you, James. Good to be here again. Another month has passed. Another month has passed. And um, obviously we we have some some great sadness around the world. There are so many conflicts. It's it's that time where we need the peace of Christ, isn't it? Yes, and and the... The coming of the kingdom is what we are about. That's what our mission is as as uh, as, as baptized uh, Christians, to proclaim the goodness of the gospel of Christ, and to act in a way that brings about all of those attributes of kingdom, a kingdom of justice and peace, of harmony between peoples, and uh, that's why our witness, and that's why the Pope has asked for this day of prayer. Our witness as Christians should not simply be a spiritual witness, but a practical one as well. So, however we can help, we must do that. Yeah, absolutely right. And it is another busy month, aren't they all? Um, October, practically the whole month, has been spent in Rome, at least, uh, at the Synod. And we're expecting uh, a letter uh, to the people of God um, and then a a final synthesis, perhaps, although some of that's not 100% clear. But I think we'll get the synthesis on Saturday, the 28th, and letter to the people of God is out now. So um, clearly it's all go and we we have our big contingent, as we've talked about before. So um, lots of interest from England and Wales. Yes, and the uh, um, the, the participation of all of our, our uh, delegates, uh, so the, the three bishops, uh, Archbishop Wilson, Bishop Stock and Bishop Hudson, as well as Father Jan Novotnik, uh, has been remarkable, keeping up to date with them individually. They've all been either a relator, which is the person who feeds back the table discussions or the secretary of tables in these uh, last uh, three weeks. And it's amazing how quickly it's gone in some respects. Although there's been... Not much news coming out. All we've had to do is to hold the the whole process in prayer. I'm looking forward to hearing the Holy Father's homily on Sunday because mm. he's celebrating the Mass at the end of the uh, this first plenary assembly of the Synod. And the Holy Father often uses his homilies just to sort of point to things. Always worth having a, a read of his homilies because you see little directional arrows of things that can come. So uh, So that's what I'll be paying attention to on Sunday. That's a really good point, actually, because obviously people talk about doctrinal change and various other sweeping changes. But it is important to remember that this technically, in terms of the Synod of Bishops, is a halfway mark, isn't it? 
Yes, there's another year um, of activity. We don't know what that activity is because the Synod Office hasn't told us yet before the plenary meeting uh, of the the Synod meets again uh, next October. But uh, it's always important to remember that the purpose of the Synod, as understood by Pope St. Paul VI, was a continuation of the collegiality of the Second Vatican Council. And whereas people have been saying, well, is this right because there are non-voting members who aren't, there are voting members who are, who are not bishops and all of that sort of thing, it doesn't matter. The thing about the Synod is that it produces texts and the texts go to the Pope and they're for his reflection. So when we get a post-synodal apostolic exhortation, which we're not expecting at the end of this first plenary assembly, that will be based on the text that the Synod Fathers have actually drawn together and having been in Rome for several synods, I was there for the one for the youth and the family, you know how these things are developed through the synod uh, discussions. And then they're given to the Pope and then he goes away and he uses it as he wills. That's the key thing, is that, is that uh, it's, it's the Pope's work, not the work of the synod. All the synod does is to discuss the issues, to bring things into relief so that people can be more clear about what's going on on the particular topic that they're looking at. Remember... This synod is about the mission of the church. The synodal pathway shows us how to be better disciples, beginning with that interior conversion from our own hearts. And then how the Pope uses that is up to him. Yes, lots of questions, but I'm sure there'll be lots of answers in due course as led by the Spirit. So, well, today we will actually on this podcast speak to Father Jan Novotnik, non-bishop voting member at Synod. Now, can't talk about the ins and outs of the room. We, we expect that, of course, we know that. But can tell us, you know, exactly what has happened and how he's approached it and a little bit about the letter to the people of God that we've got. And of course, you know, looking ahead to the final synthesis. So we will at least learn about the process and the mechanics of the thing later on in this podcast. And just a little trail ahead as well, we'll be speaking to Philip Booth, who works with us here at the Catholic Bishops Conference of England and Wales, about our cost of living statement as we move into autumn and winter, when of course the financial pressure on families will be cranked up, leaving some pretty close to the line, to be quite honest. So that will be interesting too. Now, it may be October, but we're going to touch upon November because as Catholics, in terms of remembrance and the holy souls, that's an important month, isn't it? Yes. And we begin the month of November, of course, with uh, the celebration of All Saints, a holy day of obligation in England and Wales. So uh, uh, try and make, make your way to Mass that day. And then we enter into the period of, of praying for the holy souls. And I always think that this is a very, very beautiful way of uh, remembering those who have died. Already I was in a parish at the weekend and already the, the, the envelopes and the lists were out for us to note those members for whom masses will be offered. And uh, it's, a, it's a very beautiful thing to talk about this a bit with an analogy from my own life, if I may, James. A few years ago, I was on holiday with a, a group of people. There were about eight of us and we were in Rome and we go, were going up to Assisi for the day. And um, we'd all gathered in Termini Station to get uh, the early train about six o'clock in the morning, I think, to get up to Assisi. Unfortunately, Termini is renowned for pickpockets. And uh, having lived in Rome uh, for, for such a long time, I was aware of this but still managed to get my pocket picked. Uh, and so... With your experience. Indeed, yeah, yeah. Uh, even though I was, I was very aware of, of, of the whole thing. So uh, the group, I told them to go to Assisi for the day and I went down to register the theft and uh, 
during the day, they kept sending me texts, all of them in the different group uh, on my phone. You know, say, how are you? You know, is it going all right? Have you been to the police, et cetera, et cetera. And then in the evening, they, uh, we, were, we were reunited. And even though, you know, I had lost all my cards, the fact that uh, I was able to cancel all, all of my cards and, and when I got back home, uh, my new replacement ones were there. So that was fine. It was sorted out. Why am I telling you about this? Well, if you think of me being left in Rome as my death and the people going off to Assisi uh, as life continuing, then the texts could be their prayers for me, to encourage me, to assist me. And then ultimately there was a reunion, which is ultimately when we'll all be with each other in heaven. It may be a bit of a kitsch analogy, but it's an important one because it's a reminder that the church is in three parts. There's the church triumphant, which we celebrate on All Saints Day, those who are in heaven. Then we have the church militant here on earth, uh, we who are struggling along every day of our lives, trying to live good lives as Christians. And then there's the church suffering in between, which is those who have died, but not quite in heaven yet. It's the church suffering that we actually uh, remember during the month of the Holy Souls. And this has a biblical tradition because um, uh, in the second book of the Maccabees, uh, there's a wonderful story of uh, Judas Maccabeus and his army having won a battle and they made a, a collection of nearly 2,000 drachma to send to Jerusalem to have a sacrifice for sin offered because some of the people who had fallen in the uh, in the battle, who they thought were, were, were good Jews in their community, were wearing pagan symbols under their on their breasts under their uh, armour. This is noted in the Book of the Maccabees as a noble action in which he took full account of the resurrection because if he had not expected the fallen to rise again, it would have been superfluous and foolish to pray for the dead. Whereas if he had in view the final and splendid recompense reserved for those who make a pious end, the thought was holy and devout. This was why he had this atonement sacrifice offered for the dead so that they might be released from their sin. So that's why we do it. That's one example in the scriptures of praying for the dead. My uh, favourite pointer to this is, is that wonderful conversation between St. Monica and St. Augustine before she dies. She asks Augustine to pray for her after her death. And when my dad died, there's a, I had a little prayer card made, and on it is the words of Monica, all I ask is that you remember me at the altar of God. You know, because the offering of the sacrifice of the Mass is, is the most sublime prayer that we can offer for anybody who has died. And indeed, our Eucharistic prayers tell us that we pray for those who have died. There are insertions for those who have died. And there's also, as part of the narrative, there is a, a remembrance of those who have died. Because um, we never forget those who have died. They are still part of the Church. But we want to, to, to swift them into heaven, into the full embrace uh, of our merciful Father. So a lot of people say to me, what's purgatory like? And, you know, if you look at the Council of Trent or the Council of Florence, they talk about, about a purifying fire. Now, I've got another analogy that I use for this. I'm enjoying these. Uh, well, <laughs> <laughs> it comes from pastoral ministry. When we're baptised, as soon as we're baptised, we're wrapped in a white blanket. When we die, I always liken the process of dying and going into the presence of God, being wrapped, as it were, in that white blanket. But when we're baptised, the white blanket is absolutely spotless. When we go to God, when we leave this world, there's a few smirches on that white blanket. And what we do is we hold up the white blanket to God. And those smirches and those speckles of darkness are those moments in our lives when we have failed in the opportunity to love. And what God does is he shows us all of those opportunities. 
He shows us all of the times when we didn't act as we should have done. And the purifying fire, I think, is an intellectual fire because it's a recognition of what we should have been. And that's why it hurts. That's why we, we suffer because of it. But in that process of suffering, we become holy because uh, what God does is to wipe that blanket clean again so that we may enter into the fullness of life in heaven. So purgatory for me is, is, is a recognition of all that I should have been, and I wasn't. And God does it in love so that I can be with him in love forever. You know, there's lots of good practices that we do. I know there's a, a lady I know who uh, always does the Stations of the Cross for her family uh, during uh, the month of November. One of the things I used to do in the parish was to go to the local cemeteries and to bless graves oh. uh, uh, in the month of November. So uh, there were several cemeteries in the parish. We would gather normally on a Sunday afternoon, actually, the four Sundays of November. We would go to each of the, of the family graves and, and say prayers and bless and say the rosary together and pray for those who have gone before us, marked with the sign of faith, as the Eucharistic prayer tells us. They are our influences on us and we have to be influences on others and their goodness doesn't die with them. It's like, a, it's like the wake of a ship, you know, the, their love remains and so we have to love them into the arms of our Lord's mercy uh, through our prayers, through the offering of the Mass and through our devotion to him. Oh, that's wonderful. I love the analogies and, and the teaching and the way you've put it actually. But I'm going to ask you one challenging question on this. Now, for all those very reasons, we are people of faith. We look at the eternal life we don't look at death as the end or death, you know, our mortal death as the end. Yet, do you think that even as the faithful, as believers, we still struggle with that? We do. We, we worry. We fear death. Yes. We, we, I love the idea of holding up, however, however <laughs> unclean my blanket, uh, having it held up to, to be purified. I, and, and, and theologically, that's very sound. But it's still a jump for people, isn't it? That human bit that grabs us and says... Oh, you sure? Yeah. You sure what comes next? You know, that is faith personified in a sense. But um, do you think that's changing in people? Are people? Now people are more readily able to talk about death. Is it changing or do you think we still have a way to go to show people the way, as it were, to a good death and life everlasting? Well, I think that that's a very important pastoral part of our of, of certainly a priest ministry but of the whole ministry of the church, really, because there is a fear of death. Don't forget that, uh, you know, going back to my analogy of my holiday in Roman Assisi, you know, I was left on my own. All my friends had gone. And so it's the sense that when the person dies, when somebody dies, we lose one person. When somebody dies, as it were, they lose everybody. Yeah. Uh, and it's that sort of fear of that process of dying, which can often really can be terrifying for people. And that's why there has to be a reassurance of ensuring that the person is comfortable in the process of dying, that they're surrounded by family. I don't like, it's, it's difficult when we tend to sanitise death, when it's pushed to the side. It's a central part of human life. Mm. You know, as somebody said, you know, the, the only two things that are certain in life are death and taxes. You know, we shouldn't sort of push death away. Death should be part and parcel of our, of our life, you know. And uh, I was with my mother when she died and it was a very beautiful death. She slept for most of the day, but at a quarter past midnight, she opened her eyes and looked at me and she smiled. And my mother had suffered from a very bad form of dementia, which meant that she didn't speak for the last uh, two years of her life. And uh, she smiled at me and I gave her a kiss on the forehead and I said, now, sweetheart, it's time for you to go to God. And she nodded her head and she died. 
And I just imagined that that was a very peaceful way to go, surrounded by myself and my brother were with her, uh, knowing that she wasn't alone. We've got to make sure that death isn't sanitised, as it were. It's part of who we are, and we all have to embrace it. And I just think that, that we need to be ready for it. And that's why there was a tradition in the church called the bon amours, you know, the good death, to make sure that we prepare for that. I mean, there are unexpected deaths which are terrible when people are not expected to die, and they do. And that could be heartbreaking for everybody concerned. But if we know that we're on the process of going to God to make sure that we put ourselves in order, to allow those who want to accompany us on that journey to actually be with us. And I guess, quoting our friends over at The Art of Dying Well, you have to live well to die well. Yes. And so really, if we take a small thing away for November, as we look ahead to November, perhaps it's to just commit to living well or to having a little look at ourselves, a little reflective look at ourselves for November. And to do, as Judas did in in the second book of the Maccabees, to do a pious act that may not be appealing to everybody, but even to you know go and visit the grave of somebody who has died or to say a prayer for somebody who has died or put a list in, into your parish church and uh, have a mass said for them. You know, I just think that all of these things aid to, to support our loved ones on their journey into the fullness of life with our Lord. Well said. And not only have you given us your analogies, but you've also, and I can see it, maybe you can't, listeners, of course, but I can see sacred scripture open in front of us here and you've drawn reference uh, to scripture as well in your reflections. So I think it's that time of the podcast for some scriptural reflection. As we get towards the end of, of, of this month, this Sunday is the 30th Sunday in the year, there's going to be a slight change because as we get towards the end of the church's year, we think about the second coming. We think about the the glorious coming of our Lord in time. And so uh, this last gospel um, of this month is a sort of completion of what we've been listening to over the last few weeks, which have all been challenges to Jesus. And so today in the gospel, we're reading about the Pharisees get together again to try and trip Jesus up. And they ask him a very simple question, but one that is loaded which is the greatest commandment of the law. And Jesus quotes um, the first commandment. And as Father Habits, who taught me scripture in Rome, would say, there is only one commandment, because the other nine are consequences of living that first commandment, which is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your soul. But then what Jesus says is, the second resembles it, You must love your neighbour as yourself. On these two commandments hang the whole law and the prophets also. Each of the nine subsequent commandments should be held with equal weight according to Jewish life. But what Jesus is saying here is think of the love of God and the love of neighbour as the two sides of a coin. We had a coin last week in the Gospel, slightly different with the, the image of Caesar Tiberius Augustus on it. But what we have here is the love of God and the love of neighbour. If we love God, then we will love our neighbour. If we are loving our neighbour, then we love God. But there's a third implication to this, which I think is very, very important. And that is, what are we doing when we love God? We are loving him in his very being, which is love. But each one of us is made in his image and likeness. And through our baptism, we are configured to Christ, his son who came into the world and preached the gospel to us. So in the intrinsic loving of God, there must be also a loving of self a loving of the divine image within us and everything that that points towards in our Christian pilgrimage. And loving ourselves 
is not something that is selfish or self-indulgent or self-centered. It's about honoring who we are, made in God's image and likeness, configured to Christ through baptism and trying to live out our Christian life in a way that brings honor to God and care for all those around us. Because at our core, it's the divine image that matters. And it's the image of Christ that is pushed out, as it were, from that divine image to become the guiding principle of our lives. Now, we talked about fear a moment ago, with people fearing death. I think some people fear what they're about. They fear who they are. They fear what's at the centre of my life. Or there may be nothing there. They may, there may be an emptiness in them. And what they'll do is they'll try and fill that with something else. So they'll fill it with ambition or possessions, or personal ego. But we shouldn't fear ourselves, because we are made by God for purpose. We are made to live and love in this world. Uh, you know, to live well is to love well. And so we have to delight in who we are, divinely made, and use that as the principle by which we then go out into the world and to love uh, our neighbour. And the way that I, I always think that, that, that you see this is, is with children. No, we can be a bit cynical as adults and, you know, we've got the cataracts of cynicism in our eyes and in our hearts. There's a bit of a hard shell around it. But children don't have that. And children know when they are loved. They respond to, to love. They respond to generosity. And that's because within them there is that sense, even though they may not be able to intellectualise it, they know what is good for them. They know that they move forward and they will experience love and care. And then they will go on to share that in their own way. Um, and it's that uniqueness that we have being made in God's image and likeness that allows us to be able to share love in the world. And so ultimately, when, when we look at the gospel, uh, and remember this is, this is the last question that Jesus gets before he continues his journey to Jerusalem, loving God and our neighbour expresses the gratitude that we have for being made for being created and for living in this world. A unique person with, with an experience that can't be experienced by anybody else because my experience is not your experience. My understanding of life is not your understanding of life. And so when we look at these beautiful facets of people, we realise that we can learn from each other and that it sort of becomes the, the, the little uh, faces of a beautiful diamond that shines in the world and that is the work of, of bringing God's kingdom into the world through love of God, love of neighbour and an acknowledgement of love of self which is outward facing rather than inward looking. Fantastic as always and a little mention before we close as to the fact that it's not a synod but it is a plenary we do have yes. our bishops the bishops of england and wales meeting in plenary from the 12th to the 16th of november as usual at hinsley hall That's in right. leeds and it's good for them to come together isn't it it is you know the the bishops of this country work in their dioceses uh, uh, the the uh, the fathers of the communities the points of unity to use a synodal phrase in the diocese and they'll be coming together uh, to go through the uh, the agenda of business of the plenary assembly and uh, we will be looking at, at various items. This is what, remember that the November meeting is always one where we have a focus on how well are we doing with our safeguarding because that was a commitment that the bishops made that yeah. we would always look at safeguarding and training and, and what, what are their needs as leaders uh, in the church. So that will be a significant part of our agenda for November. But we'll be looking at other things. We have some presentations from people. So 
We've got people from the Catholic Union, one of our consultative bodies, coming to speak to us, uh, and also from PACT, the Prison Advisory Charitable Trust, which are going to talk to us, especially about the developments in prison reform. Um, so that's where we are with, with, with the plenary. Yes, and it's a little bit like the Synod. We shall wait and see. Indeed. The prophetic voices of the bishops will be heard, I am sure. But, um, Father Chris, thank you very much indeed. I've learned a lot. I've been very moved by that, I have to say. So thank you. Thank you for sharing some very personal details as well. Um, And, of course, post-plenary probably, I would think, we shall speak again. We'll plan a date for our November podcast, which will be after the 17th of November. Excellent. Well, for now, we shall move on to the Reverend Dr. Jan Novotnik to tell us a little bit more about where we're at in the final week of the Synod. At the Foot of the Cross, a monthly podcast from the Catholic Bishops' Conference of England and Wales. Well, I'm delighted to say, during this synodal month in Rome, that I'm joined by the Reverend Dr. Jan Novotnik, a good friend, a good colleague from here at the Bishops' Conference of England and Wales, who is actually a non-bishop member, as I'm sure you've heard me say before, a non-bishop voting member of Synod, no less. Father Jan, delighted to have you with us. And it is nice to talk about the Synod because, necessarily, as we would be told, it's quite quiet, isn't it? Hello, James. Uh, Yeah, it is quite quiet. Uh, Before I answer that question, just to say, I feel it's been a long time that I've been out of England I'm arriving on the 29th of September and we're now three and a half weeks into Synod. And um, you mentioned about it being quiet. Well, yes, it is quiet and purposefully so in the sense that, yeah, there have been Vatican press briefings and other things happening. But the Holy Father, Pope Francis, was very clear to those of us in the room and actually to journalists who were there reporting on the first day that he wanted this to be a moment of pause for the church, where particularly those who are in the room, the bishops, Um, and the the non-bishop voting members had the opportunity to discern together, listening to the the voice of the Holy Spirit through scripture, through tradition, through the conversations we've been having, where we feel that we're being guided through the instrumentum laboris, through all the preparatory work. And so the Pope said quite clearly, this is the time for us to pause to do that. And so I think, you know, at first, I think that came as a bit of startling news to many people, me included. But actually, three weeks in, I feel that it was the right decision. We can still have conversations, but I think it was the right decision because it's given all of us in the room the opportunity just to be still with each other, with the Lord, and to do what we've been asked to do. Yes, and you've been having those conversations in the spirit that we, we've talked about. And as you say, there has been that there has been information, of course, coming out of, of Synod. But I have to ask you this. I'm not going to go into the content per se, because I understand the position you're in and I understand the rules, so to speak. But I do want to ask you, having been there now, we're in the, the final week. Do you consider this to be a positive process for the church? And do you think we'll be in a better place after the Synod, accepting that that this is going to be done all again in some way, shape or form next year? The simple answer is, I think we will be Whether we're in a better place, I think we will be in a different place, because I think what is happening is that we've had a whole series of consultations starting at the very local level in parish communities, within dioceses, then at a national level, even at a continental level, and now we're at a universal level. So at one level, we completed that first phase of um, discerning our way through everything that has come to us. And I think what's going to happen from now here on in 
is that the synthesis document, which is being prepared during this week, and the members of Synod will be looking at to see whether it's a fair commentary on what we've been saying, will become the basis for what we do in the second part of this Synod next October, to really drill down on some of those synodal processes that we've been thinking about. And the way that we've done that, as you quite rightly said, is through conversations in the spirit. And actually, I think that has been one of the best parts of this synod, is actually learning how to do that, learning really how to listen to the Holy Spirit, but listen to each other. Someone like me finds it difficult to listen without interrupting, but you go around a table, and every person of the 11 of us around the table, for example, in the first round of a conversation in the spirit, gets three or four minutes to speak without interruption. And then we all listen to each other, interspersed with time of prayer. And then in the second round, without entering into a massive dialogue, we just say what we've heard, what has struck us from what people have said. And then the third round is where the dialogue begins. So that has been a very powerful moment for me, I have to admit. Now, we have the the letter to the people of God, as you know, that we'll talk about shortly. We are recording this piece ahead of the final synthesis. So once again, it's only fair to say that we we can't speak uh, in detail about that, but all will become clear, of course. I do want to ask you about our members at Synod and those around it, like Professor Anna Rowlands, who you spoke to previewing the Synod um, before you went out. Tell us a bit about the delegation. I've seen some wonderful stuff from um, the Dominican Father Timothy Radcliffe, some some beautiful reflections there. But tell us a bit about not only the the members, the bishop members, Archbishop John Wilson, Bishop Marcus Stock um, from our bishops conference, the uh, papal appointment, Bishop Nicholas Hudson, um, and of course yourself. Tell us a little bit about how as a group, I know I'm sure you're on different tables, but tell us how you're all getting on. Well, I think we're all getting on um, very well, actually. Um... I think I can just about reveal this on one of my small tables. We have changed small tables four or five times. So each module of work, following the, the work of the Instrumentum Laboris, we changed tables. So on one occasion, I was with Bishop Marcus Stock, um, one of our own bishops, and um, it was interesting to be on a table with him. Um, but generally, I've not been on the table with people from England and Wales. We, you can sort of see each other across the room. And uh, actually, all of the English-speaking tables are grouped together. So as you look at the, the Paul VI Hall and you see the, the sculpture and uh, where the Pope normally sits, if you look to the left of that, that's where all the English tables are. Timothy Radcliffe, Father Timothy Radcliffe, as you say, gave some very beautiful spiritual reflections during our retreat time when we we're in Sacrofano outside of Rome. But he has accompanied us throughout the days of the Synod and given interventions, um, spiritual interventions, to help us focus in on our work. And in fact, in one of the masses for, uh, that begin each module, you know, I was sitting next to Father Timothy Radcliffe in the celebration. Um, and it's a great joy to be with such a, a holy, wise man. And then, you know, we have Austin Ivor and Professor Anna Rowlands. See less of them, actually, because they're doing different jobs. So they're collating a lot of the information that is being received. And the team of theologians and experts are working I don't want to say behind the scenes, that sounds wrong, but they are working to bring all of the themes together and what they're hearing. So we bump into each other at coffee times. And of course, I'm living at the English College, the, the seminary uh, for England and Wales with um, the three bishops, Bishop Nicholas Hudson, Bishop Marcus Stock and Archbishop John Wilson. All of us are here in college together. And each morning, 
alongside the Archbishop of Malta, who's also with us, and the Archbishop of Perth, Tim Costello. We celebrate Mass together. And that's been a conscious decision. We're not shunning the community of seminarians here, but because of our timetable, it's just easier for us to say Mass together in the morning. And actually, it's a good way to start the day, to pray together for God's blessing on the work that we're doing. So we're seeing a lot of each other. Yeah, and, and obviously placing it in the context of the Eucharist as the source and summit, as uh, Bishop Robert Barron, amongst other people, who I've seen you in a picture with. So I know he's obviously on the scene and you've spoken to him as well. Tell us a little bit about that letter to the people of God. Ahead of the final synthesis, why do you think that was? And tell, just tell, give us your sense of the letter. I think my sense of the letter is that it's an opportune moment as we enter the final week. And, you know, we talked about the silence and perhaps not everyone is tuning into Vatican press conferences um, or listening in all of the time. And I think there was a, a general feeling that we would like to, as the whole body of the Synod, to express what it is we've been doing. So in its briefest terms, tell people about the experience. I think it really does bear pointing out that as we begin Synod, as we begin Synod and have continued through the days of Synod, we've had the terrible, terrible news of what's going on in the Middle East. And that is not far from everyone's mind. And so mentioning that and that we are very acutely aware that what we are trying to do as a synodal church and through our synodal processes is not just an introspection. Yes, there are some things that we have to think about the life of faith. Where is God calling his church at the moment? But it's never to be centered in on ourselves. It's always to clearly have the world and the concerns of the world um, at the heart of what we do. Um, because we want to bring Christ and his message of truth and beauty and peace um, to that world. And so we have all been startled by the news that we're receiving. And, you know, I personally have been praying each day and we've been praying very publicly. And it feels very little, but it's all we can do at the moment. So this letter to the people of God will also reassure people that we've been working during this synod and point to the synthesis, which will produce the work for the next 11 months and leading us into the second part of the Synod next October. So you talked a little bit about how you start the day, certainly. Um, give us a little bit about a typical day for you, if there is such a thing at Synod. Um, a typical day, James, is extremely tiring. I don't want people thinking oh, we want to sympathy vote. I mean, um, generally, we begin here in college with Mass at seven o'clock in the morning, except on days when we change our work schedules, our modules. When that happens, the whole assembly gathers for Mass at the altar of the chair in St. Peter's Basilica at quarter to nine. Uh, but usually we would then, you know, make our way to the Vatican. It's lovely, actually, to walk uh, through the streets of Rome uh, to St. Peter's on a, on a morning, often bumping into other synod members as you get closer to the hall. But we generally start at 8.45 in the morning and we carry on through to 12.30 with our group discussions and our work with a coffee break, very important uh, when you live in Rome. It's that coffee break's essential. Then a typical Roman thing, everyone breaks at 12.30 and has a long lunch. So, you know, we all go back to where we live and we're there until about, well, we restart at four in the afternoon till 7.15. And again, there's a pause in the afternoon. So they are quite long days. And of course, we've been having our small group conversations, but then the bigger general congregations where people have been making um, interventions to the whole group. So no two days is ever completely the same, but you've got that basic format. And we also work Saturday mornings and everyone looks forward to the break. 
quite rightly on Saturday afternoon into the Lord's Day, which is Sunday, of course. Now, Pope Francis has been mentioned liberally across this whole piece in terms of his his involvement in the Synod, and he's been very present, obviously. What can you tell us a bit about, as obvious as it sounds, about his role and, and how he's interfacing with Synod? Well, do you know, James, it's... Uh... I've got used to it, but it's a bit startling. The first morning um, I saw the Pope in the aula in the room. I was sort of walking down and you sort of become aware that actually he's in the room because the the, the gentle womini that look after papal audiences are around and, and you notice that there are more Swiss guard around. And then you realise actually, oh my gosh, um, Pope Francis is in the room with us. And so he's been coming to most of the general congregations. So when we have time of free intervention, Obviously, he's not been part of a group and he's not sitting twiddling his thumbs while we're all in group work. But he, he's been part of the general congregations and he sits and listens to what's going on. And then in the break times and the period of time before we begin, he's been greeting people. So people are just and it's a really bizarre experience because you all know what it's like to be at a general audience where it's all fairly controlled and even fairly private audiences. It's fairly controlled. But actually, people just make an orderly queue and go and see the Pope. And he talks to them. So bishops, priests, lay people. And, uh, you know, one morning, um, Archbishop Shakluna, the Archbishop of Malta, I went over to say hello to him. And um, he said, uh, he said, yeah, yeah, he said, stop talking to me. He said, Pope Francis is over there. He said, go and join that queue. Go and say hello to him. And um, very obediently, I went over and then I was in this queue thinking, oh, my gosh, you know, there's Pope Francis. And in this room where people are just coming in, putting their books and their bags down and sorting themselves out. And I just had a very brief interlude with him and was able to thank him for appointing me as a non-bishop voting member and ask him to pray for the people of England and Wales. And I know our bishops, um, Bishop Marcus Stock actually was ahead of me that morning in the queue. So it's a really beautiful experience to have the successor of Peter in the room with you. And sometimes you have to pinch yourself and think, gosh, that is the Pope in the room, sitting at a desk, taking notes, listening to what's going on. And, I, uh, you know, I, perhaps I'm pushing my luck asking you this, but did he say anything to you about, about your work or your well-being or anything like that? Uh, no, he didn't. And um, I think it was, you know, he was, you know, there were lots of people actually greeting him. He, he smiled and he said, God bless you and, and thank you. So I, I felt affirmed. Um, in the work that I'm doing. And, um, you know, it, it's just lovely, actually, to see other people, you know, at Synod, um, in my group, uh, at one stage, I've had the youngest person in Synod, who's a 19-year-old uh, male from America, um, who was chosen by the American church. And um, he's been on my group. And he came back absolutely radiant when he'd seen the Pope. Now, I've lived in Rome. There have been many occasions when I've been in the Pope's presence. It was beautiful to see this young lad, this guy, um, full of enthusiasm for the Lord, um, going up to see the Pope. He's been up to see him three times now. Um, and I said to him, yes, I said, does the Pope know who you are now? He said, well, he knows my face. He can't remember my name. And he said, I can't remember your name, but thank you for coming to see me. I think these are the little things that people don't necessarily see. And, and they are quite beautiful moments. It just occurs to me as well, though, talking about our bishops in particular, Archbishop John Wilson, Bishop Marcus Stock and Bishop Nicholas Hudson, that actually taking taking a month out of a diocese is a pretty long time, isn't it? So I, I guess in order for this to be truly global, truly Catholic, that, that commitment needs to be there. But it, it's quite a big one, isn't it? 
Oh, yeah, it is. And um, I know that our bishops, um, and may I just put a plug in for myself, have been carrying on with our desk jobs, our day jobs. Oftentimes, it's very difficult because you're giving full attention to the synod, which we've asked to do. But obviously, things arise and you have to reply to emails or talk with people back in the dioceses. And so our own bishops, I know, have been very present to that. But also, I was talking to a French bishop the other day, and he said, oh, gosh, you know, he said, I got home the other evening. And then I realized that there were loads of things going on in the diocese, and I want to support people. So I was on a Zoom call. And, you know, so I think the bishops, if you're going to be plunged into a synodal church, which we've been discerning is about accompanying and walking with people, then you can't let people go for a month. So, you know, there's, there's a bit of a challenge in that. But I think we all see why we have to give the time. But it is challenging as well. And I know our own bishops have been praying for their diocese, for their people, for their priests. They've stayed in contact with them. You know, Bishop Marcus, for example, had a group of his young priests from the Diocese of Leeds out on pilgrimage. He was able to spend time with them and go out for dinner with them, which was a great moment for him. So it's uh, both and, I think. A final question. Again, I don't want it to be provocative and I don't want it to put you in a difficult place. But obviously, I'd be asked why I didn't ask it, I suppose, if not. But yourself and Professor Anna Rowlands, particularly Professor Rowlands, said, well, look, those expecting big doctrinal changes may be disappointed. And I think the question I want to ask you, again, acknowledging that this is being recorded ahead of the final synthesis, and again, also acknowledging that this is the halfway house in the process, as it were, and this will happen all again next October, October 24. What would you say at this stage with your knowledge are reasonable expectations for those of us to have back home of the process looking on to next year? Well, James, you know, I don't shy away from difficult questions. So already in the letter to the people of God, you will see the hints of where we're already at, which is, you know, we have discerned, we have had these conversations in the spirit, which haven't been random Each one of us was assigned work. In fact, we assigned it to ourselves. Before we came, we chose what kind of topics we wanted to to discuss through the Instrumentum Laboris, which, you know, people will see online. Um, I don't think it's any secret that as the ecumenical officer for our bishops' conference that one of the topics I chose was about how ecumenism can inform and the work that we do with other Christians informs our work synodally. I think I can say that without breaching any great confidences. So I think what people are going to see at the end of this is a synthesis which quite clearly sets out where we're at at the moment, the topics we've been discussing, and probably where the pointers are for what we think needs to be further discussed. So part of the work that we've done, um, you know, I've been both a reporter back to the group and now I'm secretary for our final group, means that, you know, the work of the small groups has been recorded And we've been asked to think about specific topics and then challenge each other on where we find consensus in a particular topic um, and where there might be divergences. And then to pose questions about where we think this is leading us um, in the interim period now between this um, October and next October. So I would imagine, I can't say I've not been told what the final synthesis will actually look like. But I think what I would see is are those points of convergence, the points of divergence, but also questions for us, the members of the people of God, as we progress forward to October 24. And it may be that the Holy Father decides to ask certain people 
to look into the questions that the Synod has posed on certain topics. But I wouldn't know whether that would happen or not. But I would imagine there will be wherewith there has been consensus, where there has been less consensus, and the questions for the way ahead. Well, I think perhaps we should give you a job in the diplomatic corps. <laughs> uh, thank, thank, you, thank you for having a go at that one ahead of seeing the uh, final synthesis. Listen, Father Ian, thank you so much. I know time is at a premium, as it always is. So thank you for talking to us. Thank, thank you. you also, bearing in mind that we are quite closely restricted as to what we can and can't say. So I appreciate you taking on the questions. And I'm sure we'll have more to say when you return to the UK and the final synthesis is out and there are some things to talk about. So perhaps we can pick it up then and talk more clearly about some of the issues that will be presented therein. I think we'll be able to do that and I look forward to seeing you next week um, back in London. I can't believe I'm saying that. After four weeks away, I shall be looking forward to getting back to uh, to my desk at the Bishop's Conference. Well, crikey me. <laughs> well, God bless you, Father. God bless you. And nice to talk to you. Good, you good luck James. with the remaining days. Thank you very much. God bless you all. Thank you. God bless. Well, now on our podcast, we're speaking to Philip Booth, who is the Director of Policy and Research here at the Bishop's Conference, and also the Professor of Finance, Public Policy and Ethics at St Mary's University Twickenham, and at that very same prestigious university, the Director of Catholic Mission. Philip, good to have you with us. Thank you. So we're going to be talking about a cost of living statement that the Bishop's Conference is putting out. And it's been a year or so, and autumn, winter, clearly certainly in terms of our catholic families families full stop is mm -hmm. is a challenging time mm -hmm. you know with with the fuel costs just to name but one thing mm -hmm. tell us a bit about the context why now for this statement what why is this important to us now well as you said james it is about a year since we put out the last cost of living statement and inflation has fallen somewhat during that period but at the same time certain things are putting greater pressure on 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 family life uh, but also we find that there are just structural issues that families face, which, if you like, reduce their resilience in the face of the shocks that we, we had to, to energy prices, food prices, and, and so on. And the government will be making um, a big financial statement on, on the 22nd of November. And the Department for Social Justice felt that this was the right time to issue another statement on the cost of living, which also set the wider context and maybe the longer-term context in which some of these problems are evolving. And what are those, those more long-term structural problems that people face? Well, perhaps the most obvious one is the extremely high cost of, of housing that uh, people face in, in the United Kingdom. The Caritas Social Action Network did some work on this a, a few years ago and, and um, developed some uh, policy papers, but um, really nothing has, has changed since. In, in fact, if anything, things have got worse. Rents have increased in the last um, year or so. Mortgage rates have also increased. So families face in this country a very, very high cost of housing, which takes a, an extremely high proportion of their disposable income. That's one of the big challenges that families have faced in the UK for really a number of years. The other problem which is developing in a, a lot of countries in the Western world is, is changing demography. So the, the population is ageing, pressures on healthcare, pension systems and so on are increasing. And at the same time, as the population ages, the number of working taxpayers is either falling or falling as a proportion of, of the total population. And this makes it much more difficult for governments to fund public services. So you have simultaneously the phenomenon of the 
tax burden increasing and people commenting on, on that. And, and of course, families have to pay additional uh, levels of higher taxes, whilst at the same time, Spending on certain things, especially welfare benefits uh, for people of working age and other items of government spending, are falling. And the, the reason for that is really because of the pressures on certain budgets, pensions, healthcare, etc., arising from the ageing population. A third issue, which is also facing all countries, is the desire to move to net zero, the desire to decarbonise uh, e- economies. And when we had the recent energy price shock, one of the things, of course, which countries couldn't do was shift to other forms of carbon intensive energy, which perhaps could be produced domestically or imported from areas of the world not affected by the crisis, such as coal. And it may be that over time there are technological innovations which make renewables and forms of energy which emit much less carbon much, much cheaper. But at the moment, the process of decarbonising economies, of course, costs both governments and uh, households money. So that's that's three challenges, amongst many others, I'm sure, that governments in uh, much of the Western world are facing. And of course, um, you know, this cost of living statement will be on our website. So it's important to say with this interview, Mm -hmm. we're we're not covering the entire Mm -hmm. statement. You can read that for yourself, dear Mm -hmm. listeners. Now, a quick word about the preferential option for the poor, because mm. we, we hear this quite a lot, this phrase, mm. but perhaps we need it unpacking. What exactly does it mean? Well, I think in this context, it, it means that the, 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 the government, despite the challenges it, it faces, indeed, you could say because of the challenges it faces, should be especially attentive to the needs of the poor when examining policy options. So this may include points we've raised, which we think the government should take into account before the autumn statement, such as ensuring that welfare benefits are fully operated in line with inflation, of reversing the two-child cap on universal credit payments, and also when it comes to policies such as the decarbonisation of energy markets, making sure that um, the poor are protected from some of the more expensive consequences of, of that. And, and so you know, the preferential option for the poor is something which should be at the heart of, of all our Catholic life. It's not just something for politicians. But when politicians are look, examining policy options at the moment, when there are so many people struggling with the cost of living, when there are so many people who are on the margins of actually being able to afford all those things which are necessary for a dignified life, it's incumbent upon governments to examine uh, policies through the lens of, of how they will lift the burdens on the poor. Well, without playing devil's advocate too much, I think, you know, you do acknowledge that these these decisions aren't easy for government. So I suppose an obvious question would be, you know, what is the church's voice in this? Is it appropriate that we raise our voice? It seems to me it is, but I'd like to hear it from from you. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, there are a range of perspectives on, on this, but the church teaches that the church is an expert on humanity and that all knowledge comes from God and if you think about disciplines such as economics, political economy, politics, etc., they're all interconnected and they're all connected with wider philosophical issues and indeed wider theological issues as, as well. So the church must have something to say uh, about these issues. There is then the question of to what extent the church institutionally has something to say about specific policy options which face government. Then there is perhaps some disagreement between Catholics as to how detailed uh, that the church should get. But uh, the statement makes clear that there are many people working in public life, many Catholics working in public life, many others of goodwill working in public life. There are organisations like the Catholic Union and the SVP, 
Caritas Social Action Network, who are very close to the policy scene. They're very close to the problems that, that, that people face. And, and if you like, they have the expertise and uh, ability to make prudent judgments when it comes to policy recommendations. So the Catholic Union, for example, has done work on the taxation of families and the, and the way in which the uh, taxation system and the welfare system doesn't treat certain forms of family structure uh, as justly as it should. And, and as I mentioned before, Caritas Social Action Network has done work on housing and, and so on. And all of these organisations are actually working together on the question of the two-child cap. So the church in her social teaching does actually say that she has no models to present, she has no technical solutions, but she does have a perspective on principles and then of course a huge number of people, huge number of Catholics and others in goodwill working in public life whose um, vocation it is actually to develop technical solutions to the problems we face. That's very interesting. I mean, just as a, as a small personal question, do you find applying your faith or having your faith as a key part of you coming forward into economics is challenging? Are there, do you hear the argument from people that the two things should be totally separate? How much of a challenge is that for you? You do hear the argument that the two things should be totally separate. And in in the academic world in, in particular, there is some merit sometimes in separating out disciplines into their what some people call silos. The Catholic Church recognises actually that you know, each each discipline, each academic discipline, has something to contribute and has often its own framework of reference or own methodology. But especially following the financial crisis and the now Cardinal Archbishop of Westminster, Vincent Nichols, took a, a real lead here. People have realised the importance of reconnecting economics with ethics, with wider aspects of uh, philosophy, and also potentially with theology as well, rather than just seeing technical, what some people call positive economics, you know, empirical economics, if you like, as being a subject which should just be ploughed as a furrow, not connected with other disciplines. So you get fewer and fewer people, I, I think, saying that we, we shouldn't try to look at how the economics, politics, philosophy, theology should be joined together and how the subject should, in a sense, enrich each other. Well, I feel it should be. It feels comfortable for, for me to hear you say that. Going back to this statement, I like it. I like the balance of it. I like the fact that obviously it, it does challenge government. It does talk about those priorities that the government should have as we see it that you've mentioned. But also, you know, a statement is a statement. Where, where does it lead to to action, to, to a better place for people mm -hmm. that are struggling, that find themselves on, on the margins or very close to the poverty line or below it, sadly, mm -hmm. you know, when does this sort of statement turn into action? Is it, as you recognise towards the, the end of this piece, the acknowledgement of what the Catholic charities are doing, what Catholic schools are doing, people under the CSAN umbrella, the mm -hmm. SVP, for instance? Tell us a bit about the, the action to this statement. Yep. OK, I mean, there's, there's a great deal of work which has been done by Catholic charities and, and by Catholic schools to ease the short-term effects of the cost of living crisis and, and also to help, of course, migrants, refugees and, 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 and so on uh, who are entering the country partly from troubled parts of the world, such as Hong Kong and, and, and Ukraine, but also to seek a better life in the United Kingdom, which the, the church teaches they are entitled to do. Pope Francis has talked in relation to the, the climate crisis that lots of small acts can build up to a change in culture. And I think the, the same is true when we're talking about the exercise of solidarity in civil society, in our parishes, in our schools and in Catholic life more generally. Pope Benedict XVI, in, in his encyclical letter Deus Caritas Est, which he published in 2005, talked about how 
the Christians of the early church made offerings in accordance with their means, and those offerings were used to support orphans, widows, the sick, and others who found themselves in need. But he also talked about how this was, in a sense, the mark of Christians. Others recognised uh, Christians for their willingness to assist others. And throughout the life of the church in England and Wales, including in the period since the re-establishment of, of the uh, uh, hierarchy, the church in England and Wales has been marked by a huge outpouring of charitable works, the creation of schools and then the creation of a, uh, a very significant network of Catholic charities, many of which come under the umbrella of Caritas Social Action Network. And if you add up all of the um, small and very often significant things that these are doing, they amount to an enormous amount of assistance that has been given to those who find themselves in hardship at the current time. And that's what the church calls us to do. Solidarity is not a political action plan, or at least not just a political action plan. It's a virtue which the church calls us all to exercise in all aspects of our lives. And mentioning our Lord Jesus Christ should obviously not be a tick box, but I have to say I feel happy that we do see this enshrined in Scripture. The introduction that there's a quote from Psalm 34, the Lord hears the cry of the poor, mm. simply, but but very well put. And I think final question to you is, and I might be thinking of the widow's might here. I mean, those that have nothing, almost nothing, mm. feel they have absolutely no leeway in their, their monthly budget. Mm-hmm. I mean, is there a role for all of us in here, no matter where we find ourselves on, on that sort of prosperity or poverty spectrum? Yes, very much so. And I think it's important that there is a wide understanding of this because it's by helping others that we feel more fulfilled ourselves and closer to God ourselves. And it's not just those who are are poor as well. It may be those who, for for other reasons, uh, illness, infirmity, maybe housebound and and so on, uh, are unable to contribute actively, say, to the charitable works of the church or at least contribute financially, I should say, to the charitable works of the church. So in in his encyclical letter, Solicitude Re Socialis, John Paul II wrote, those who are weaker for their part in the same spirit of solidarity should not adopt a purely passive attitude or one that is destructive of the social fabric, but while claiming their social rights should do what they can for the good of all. And whatever our situation in, in life, our cost of living statement says, We can all contribute to promoting the dignity of others and help others live a fulfilled life. And this is so even if our circumstances limit us to praying for others or offering up our own um, suffering. And and those works of charity that we do in in that way then bring us closer to God and deepen our own relationship uh, with God. So whatever our position, whatever the circumstances we find ourselves in, we can all do something to help others throughout this cost of living crisis. Well put. We all have our part to play. Philip Booth, thank you very much indeed. Well, that's it for a busy October at the foot of the cross. Thanks to Canon Chris Thomas for his contribution, as always. To Father Jan Novotnik for sharing his experiences of almost four weeks in the Synod discussions. And of course, to Philip Booth for guiding us through our cost of living statement. Let's remember, literally, to pray for the Holy Souls in November and to pray for peace and an end to violence and war on the 27th of October. It just remains for me to say thank you very much for listening, and we'll be back with another At the Foot of the Cross next month. Bye for now.